Welcome to Civil Discourse. This podcast will use government documents to illuminate the workings of the American government and offer context around the effects of government agencies in your everyday life. And now your hosts, Nia Rogers, public affairs librarian, and Dr. John Augenbaugh, political science professor. Good morning, gentlemen. How are y'all today? Fine, thank you. Doing fine, thanks. So for listeners, um, Bill Newman has joined us again. Yay, Bill Newman, um, to talk uh, today with us about our um, episode on characters. And so what this what this rose out of was me thinking about the fact that Donald Trump is by far not the most dramatic person who has served in public life. I know that right now it feels like we are the Donald Trump channel all the time, but before Donald Trump, there were other people, right? There were other people that were sort of these larger than life characters. Um, so if when I when I ask that, when I say, who do you think of when you think of larger than life characters in public service? Bill, who do you, who do you think of? Uh, I think of Lyndon Johnson right away. Okay. okay. Well, I mean, I know he was physically large, right? Uh, <laughs> yes. Yeah. He's one of the, one of the tallest presidents, right? I think just really just Lincoln. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. yeah. He was what? Uh, six, five and change. Yeah. Uh, yeah. He was a pretty big guy and he used Holy that to pay people. I would be intimidated by that. I'm five foot two. I would come up to his belly button. Um, okay, but but aside from size, why? What's okay? Well, uh, I just finished a book and I looked at uh, Kennedy, Johnson, and Nixon. And in doing all this research on on uh, on Johnson in particular, I, the guy was just uh, monumental in the way that. He had to dominate every aspect of your life if you worked for him. That was that was it. So uh, a couple of things. Actually, I started the chapter on Johnson with a quote from Bill Moyers, who was one of his chief aides in the White House. And Moyers described Johnson as 13 of the most interesting and difficult men he's ever met. <laughs> 13. 13. So he's like all about Johnson, like all about Eve. Like, yeah, like you never knew if you were going to walk into his office and he was going to give you gifts or he was going to chew you out and fire you, even though you knew you weren't really fired, right? You're just going to come back a half an hour later and he'd give you another gift and apologize, right? That's the way he did it. And uh, another great thing is uh, George Reedy, who was a Senate staffer and then a White House aide who worked for Johnson like forever, uh, wrote a memoir about Johnson in 1982, right, nine years after Johnson dies, and in the preface said, I had to write this because Johnson still haunted me, and I had to get this out of my system. <laughs> right? and wow. He, he, oh, my he, goodness. <laughs> it's nine years after he dies, right. He referred to the book as an exorcism. <laughs> wow. So, in but by mind. control every part of your life, do you mean like he, he wanted to know your personal business? Like, who are you dating and what's going on? And you had no personal business. You had Lyndon Johnson's business. That was it. Oh, that I don't care if you're buying a house. You need to go down to the, to the Congress and tell them blah, 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 blah. Right. It's, it's all a test of loyalty. 
constant test of loyalty. Oh, that doesn't sound familiar at all. <laughs> no. <laughs> to put you in a position where you have to choose between Johnson and everything else you might care about. Bill, uh, wow. One of, well, Bill, one of the famous, um, if you will, uh, uh, descriptions of uh, President uh, Johnson uh, is the so-called treatment. Mm -hmm. Could you spend a couple moments describing uh, what was President, President Johnson's treatment? Right. So Johnson was an old-fashioned dealmaker, right? Everything was about a deal. Uh, Johnson tried to figure out what you wanted, and then he's going to give you something that you want in exchange for you giving him something he wants, right? You know, that classic log rolling version of politics, uh, which actually got things done, but you just don't want to see it happen, uh, right? You, so you don't want to see it. So what he would do is he'd basically have intelligence in his mind about what he wanted from you, and then he would meet with you. And when he met with you, that's when the treatment began, is he would physically grab you. He'd put his thumb you know, in a pressure point around your neck and talk about you know, what you wanted to put his arm around you and pretty much break your shoulders and saying, you know, you, you know you really want to do this and you want to vote for this piece of legislation and that, there must be something that you need and he wasn't going to let go of you. Or he'd get right in your face and because he was so tall, he would then lean into you and force you essentially to lean backwards and he'd put you in physical, physical discomfort right until you agreed with him uh, or he'd use the phone call and he would just call you you know he'd call you at midnight and say you ready to vote on that legislation you'd say well gee i'm not sure i'm going to sleep on it and then he'd call you at 1 a.m and say have you thought about it you made a decision yet and, and were you, were you sleeping <laughs> yeah exactly he said well you weren't sleeping you were thinking about what i wanted because that's what you should have been doing oh my gosh I used to, uh, uh, Bill and Did, Nia, I used to, used to in my intro to U.S. government class, uh, ask for a volunteer, and I would play Johnson, and the student would be, um, you know, a member of Congress who I wanted their vote on an important piece of legislation. Um, not surprisingly, I've had to stop doing it because some <laughs> students started to complain that perhaps it crossed the line of appropriate you know, behavior in a classroom, but my, but my students were just aghast. They were just like, the president of the United States did this. And I was just like, yes, because- It sounds well, like assault. Like, yeah. yeah, yeah, pretty much, yeah. <laughs> I mean, you're gonna grab you around the neck and basically say, you're gonna vote my way, right? Like that sounds yeah. to me like, or your kneecaps are gonna take the brunt, I mean, I mean, did he actually give you what he promised to give you if you gave him the vote? Did he come through on the deals? He'd come through on the deals. Okay. So he at least didn't get your vote and then walk away and leave you hanging. You get the physical pain and then some candy afterwards. So you're, you're okay. Wow. Okay. Well, that seems, I can see where that would read as larger than life. And I can also see where that would be deeply uncomfortable for people who in his normal line of work don't do that sort of physical like you don't see a lot of physical contact 
between members of Congress or the president. Like rarely does the president just grab people and do stuff with them, at least in public. Right. So it, I can imagine where that would be like you'd find yourself going, I don't know what's happening here, but I will do whatever I have to do for, to, for it to stop. Right. <laughs> like, you know, you if you'll take your thumb out of my neck, I'll give you whatever you want. Like, <laughs> yeah. that's that's what he counted on. That's what I would think. So that would work on me. Oh, my goodness. And uh, it's funny because I, I used to say in my classes that the kind of stuff that Johnson did uh, were things that no one could possibly get away with in current American politics. And I turned out to be completely wrong. Right? <laughs> <laughs> well, but Donald Trump doesn't physically grab people. Uh, right? Well, like, isn't he sort of germaphobic? I think he really doesn't like to, to sort of physically have that kind of contact with people. He doesn't physically grab uh, like members of Congress and people he works with, but others, we know he had that history. <laughs> uh, well, that's true. Yeah. Okay, but moving on from that. Uh, hmm, okay. Uh, here's, here's just one quick example. All right. Uh, and this is a story uh, that Arthur Goldberg uh, used to tell, right? It's Associate Justice in the Supreme Court, and he was the Johnson's uh, US ambassador to the United Nations. And Goldberg was in the room where a reporter was pestering Johnson about Vietnam and saying, you know, why are we in Vietnam? What's, what's the point there? And Johnson kept giving him the answer, you know, domino theory, uh, containment, et cetera, et cetera. And the reporter wasn't having any of that and said, yeah, but why Vietnam? Why Vietnam? And according to Goldberg, Johnson then unzipped his pants. <gasps> and uh, I'm trying to figure out a, a euphemism for this. So I'll just use revealed state secrets. Uh, and uh, said, this is why. Oh. And then zipped his pants back up. And that was the end of the interview. Uh, okay, listeners yeah. cannot see my face, but if either <laughs> gentleman on this call described my face right now, I think the word they'd probably use would be appalled. Yeah, yeah, Nia's mortified right now. Yeah. Oh my gosh. She's, she's combinations of appalled, mortified, and just utterly shocked that the president of the United States would reveal state secrets like that. <clears throat> yes. Demonstrate his equipment. Wow. Yes. Mm -hmm. yeah. uh, well, and I know that some of the tapes of Johnson in the White House have him being very graphic about his, the fit of his clothing. Oh, yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah, this very uh, long conversation about his inseam. Yes. And you're like, goodness, this is a person who has many thoughts about this. Um, wow. Yeah, yeah I, I, I tell my students with some regularity, Nia, that, you know, President Nixon, in part, had to resign because of what was uh, discussed in the Oval Office on tape. And many students are just well, why would presidents tape their conversations? And I'm like, well, they do it for a number of reasons, but Nixon wasn't the only president who did it. And I said, and if you are shocked by some of the stuff that's been reported on the Nixon tapes, you guys <laughs> need to read the transcripts of the stuff on the Johnson tapes. Because I said, Johnson, okay, put Nixon to shame, okay? from the, the profane language, 
to the descriptions of body parts, to what he was going to do to enemies. I mean, my goodness, okay? Johnson, uh, you know, if many Americans thought that Donald Trump was unhinged, there are parts of the transcripts of Johnson's conversations in the Oval Office where you're just like, how did this person become president of the United States? Yeah. Which, which is a different question for a different podcast. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but we'll ask Bill back to talk about that at some point. How in the world do unhinged people, anyway. Um, and not unhinged because he got a lot of stuff done. Like, that's the weird thing about yeah. hinged and unhinged is in the eye of the beholder. Because jo- out of Johnson's presidency comes enormous gains for uh, civil rights and social equity. And I mean, we're not there, but it, but it, we're significantly further along than we were before Johnson's presidency. So, so you get that. Okay, Augie. What about you? Who's the first person you think of when you... Well, before we get to uh, my exemplar of being a character, that's one of the themes. If you think about some of the, you know, larger-than-life characters in American politics, they get a lot of... They they achieved many things in addition to being larger-than-life. And my example uh, is Huey Long who was a well-known politician in the state of Louisiana, okay? Um, And about which a movie was made with Paul Newman? I think it's Paul, anyway. No, no. Uh, uh, Broderick Crawford. Uh, uh, The the book in the movie is All the King's Men. Ah. All the King's Men, okay? Huey Long was a politician in uh, Louisiana in the 1920s and 30s. Um, and he was uh, uh, described as a democratic populist, okay, a democratic populist. Um, he was born poor, um, never went to law school, but he read the law and passed the Louisiana bar exam. Uh, he made his money as an ambulance chaser. He sued corporations in Louisiana and made a whole bunch of money, and he railed about elites. He ran for governor in uh, uh, 1824, lost, but he won his second try in 1828. Uh, 18 or 19? Excuse me, 1928, 1928. Please forgive me. Yeah, okay. Um, And then he almost immediately converted a whole bunch of civil service jobs in the state of Louisiana uh, state government to patronage jobs. So he got, <laughs> he got to pick all of his loyal supporters. And he believed, okay, like his, uh, uh, his idol, Andrew Jackson in the uh, 1800s, okay, that government jobs didn't have to be done by elites, that common Louisiana men and women could do the work. And they loved him. They loved him. Okay. At one point, because there was uh, a vacancy um, uh, for the uh, one of the U.S. Uh, Senate seats from Louisiana, at one point, he was both the governor and a senator from the state of Louisiana. He, <laughs> he was went, 
both at the same time? Yes, because Louisiana, like many states, give the governor the authority to appoint replacements for vacancies for Senate seats. And there's no law against appointing yourself? There was a law that was against it. There was a Louisiana <laughs> constitutional provision, but he didn't care. He just went ahead and did it because he was the kingfish. Okay. Wow. At one point, they tried to impeach him um, in the Louisiana uh, 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 state legislature. And while they were having the impeachment trial, he, he went ahead and bust in thousands of citizens of Louisiana who engaged in a protest and rally outside the, uh, 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 the, the, the legislative chamber to put pressure on them to vote um, uh, not guilty. And it worked. It worked. Okay. He had more. So the law is meaningless to him. Was oh. meaningless to him. Yeah. Okay. He didn't think the New Deal went far enough. So he chose himself to be in the Senate and then almost immediately went on the Senate floor to criticize FDR. I just am imagining, I, I'm just trying to imagine, uh, so for listeners, uh, we're in Virginia, and our governor is <clears throat> Governor Northam. I'm trying to imagine him appointing himself <laughs> to the Senate. While and he's that, still governor. While yeah. he's still governor, and, and that last, like, and the Senate allowing him to speak. You, you would think that immediately they would say, you can't do that, that's, <laughs> that's illegal, go home. Right, but instead, he gets to actually talk on the floor of the Senate. Did he oh. take votes? I mean, was he a sitting member of the Senate, meaning he did the Senate's oh, yeah. work? Yeah, he eventually stepped down as governor of Louisiana, okay? Um, but he had so installed his cronies in Louisiana government that well into the 1960s, 70s, and 80s, um, Members of his family still control Louisiana politics. Just to give you an example, his wife, okay, um, ended up being in the U.S. Senate. His son ended up being in the U.S. Senate. His brothers, okay, one was a governor of Louisiana, and another one was a member of the House of Representatives, okay? This guy impacted Louisiana politics for almost five decades, five decades. And before you think, well, you know, hey, that's just a, an example of how uh, corrupt uh, 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 politics is in Louisiana. He got a lot done in the state. I mean, Nia, you mentioned, for instance, the achievements of President, you know, President Johnson, you know, the 1964 Civil Rights Act, the 1965 Voting Rights Act. Uh, the creation of Medicare and Medicaid. Well, Huey Long built a whole bunch of schools, built a whole bunch of roads, a whole bunch of hospitals, actually in, uh, uh, instituted the first taxing of petroleum companies in Louisiana, okay? So, I mean, he did a lot of good, but the way he did it, <laughs> my goodness, you're just like, wow. <laughs> And, and that, that's a kind of a common theme in a lot of places in, 
in, in U.S. politics, not just state, but even national, right? It's like, this guy has done something for me. So he's my guy. And I don't care how he did it. I don't care if he goes to jail. I don't care whatever. He's my guy because he thinks about me and I have that loyalty to him regardless of what else happens. Yeah, that is one of the themes. Yeah. That's, that's, it's, but that's interesting and scary because you could build, well, you could build a populist movement as we have seen, and it could, it could lead you to all kinds of interesting um, and potentially dangerous um, places. So it sounds to me like um, Huey Long is a, that part of that is personality. Both of those men, Johnson and Long, had personality traits that allowed them to say, my will is more important, or my will is so right, like what I'm doing is so right, that the social norms or the political norms or the legal norms don't apply. Yeah. Yeah, which is yeah. it's just fascinating because normally that's not something we that kind of hubris is not something we reward, but seem we seem to be rewarding it in public service, which is I know we're going to talk later about people who didn't do that, so that, that there is there is the other side of it. So, Bill, do you have another one? Uh, yeah, actually, I had um, a, a character, but it's not a. Uh, uh, Think of Harry Truman. And not as an exemplar of bad character, but just quirky and, and fascinating <laughs> and uh, by character in a good way. Right? Okay. The way, some, some, some stuff about Truman, uh, which are just, uh, you know, kind of, kind of hysterical, uh, you know, as you know, Truman was uh, vice president when uh, Franklin Roosevelt died and uh, Truman, uh, for the 1944 election was just not interested at all in being vice president and he was called and asked about it and he said no <laughs> uh, what like fdr's people called and said hey we'd like you to be vice president he was like yeah i'm busy no no, like, no no it wasn't fdr's people it was oh. the democratic national uh, uh uh committee who did yeah uh, he's like go to hell no no <laughs> i don't want to do it and then finally, FDR has to eventually make the call and say, you know, if you want to break up the Democratic Party in the middle of a war and basically convince them, you know, we lose world, we lose this war unless you take vice vice president and then it's all your fault, right? Was he going to run for president? Uh, well, that's essentially what FDR was thinking. He didn't believe that he was going to last from 44 to 48. And so he was choosing the next president. Okay. At that time. And Truman was the... Uh, chairman of a special Senate committee that was investigating defense production. So no politician knew more about defense industry than Harry Truman. Ah, okay. So at that time, war was, uh, World War II was about production. Who could outproduce the other side? And so Truman was the right guy for, for FDR to pick. I mean, he was an amazing judge of talent. He's the guy who picked Eisenhower from sort of the lower ranks of generals and said, you're gonna run the war in Europe. And Eisenhower's specialty was management. And so he walked in and, and, and ran the largest military operation in the history of the world, right? D-Day, 
and just amazing. But after you all looked at Truman and said, you're, you're the guy, you know more than, than anybody else. Uh, Truman actually even in uh, 1943 in doing those investigations found the money for the Manhattan Project. <laughs> found it? What, like yeah. in the it's coins like, of the couch? In the like? In the books as an accountant, right? Forensic accounting. He's looking at these going, what's this chunk of money for? I can't find what it's spent for. And the Secretary of War, Henry Stimson, had to go to him and say, trust me, this is something that is secret, has to remain secret. It'll win us the war. And Truman said, got it. No problem. Won't ask about it again. And then FDR dies on April 12th, 1945. It's not until April 25th that Stimson comes back into Truman's office and says, well, you're president now. Uh, remember that thing that you found back in 1943? Well, now I can tell you about it. Uh, so for two weeks, the president of the United States didn't know about the atomic bomb. Wow. Yeah. Uh, uh, go ahead. I, I'm just surprised. Well, I mean, I guess that there's layers of secrets that people don't tell the president. It seems terrifying. Anyway, <laughs> go ahead. I just, but then again, there's only so much information any one person can keep in their head at any one time. And the federal budget is enormous. Like if, if you knew how every dollar was spent, your head would explode, right? Because it's not. Yeah. It's not, you can't do that kind of math. You have to trust that the layers are working appropriately. At least I think you do. Anyway. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so just a, a couple things about Truman that I think are great. Uh, you know, things that you don't think about. Um, he never owned a house before he became president of the United States. It was too uh, Really? Yep, yep. He, and uh, he was still paying off some of his debt from when his business went under. When he became president. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, you talk about someone who say, okay, you know, do we have honest presidents? That's, that's pretty good. Uh, but we're, we're sort of getting to the exemplar part of it, but here, here's the, the quirky stuff, right? So he's from Missouri and his parents were born in the 1850s. So they are hardcore Southerners. They are still mad that the South lost the civil war, <laughs> right? That's the environment he, he grew up in. So he becomes president of the United States and his mom comes to visit. She's gonna stay in the White House, right? Your son's president of the United States. So he says, mom, we're gonna put you in this bedroom. It's the Lincoln bedroom. <gasps> she won't do it. She refuses to sleep there. She says, I will not sleep in a room where that man slept. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Right, so. Sorry, mom, I'll take the couch. You can have my room. Uh, yeah, yeah, so they put her somewhere else. He thought it was hysterical. Uh, That's bitter. That's it, bitter. When, you're yeah. when your kid is president and you still won't. Okay, all right. Uh, <laughs> my favorite stuff is that you know, he's in the White House and he's still not getting the idea that he's president of the United States. So uh, when when Bess wasn't in the White House, he'd get really bored and lonely and sort of have nothing to do and kind of forget that he was president. So he gets up one morning, he opens up his wallet and realizes he doesn't have any cash, right? Does the president need cash? Well, Harry Truman thinks, so. I'd better have some cash you know, in case I need to do something today. So he leaves. <laughs> he just walks out the front door, walks down the street <laughs> to a bank, says hello to people, hi people. He goes into the bank, he gets in line, 
<gasps> and he waits till he gets with the teller and he cashes a check. <laughs> so wait, there was no secret service at this point? There was, but they had no idea where he was until the bank <laughs> called. Oh my gosh. Can you imagine we lost the president? Like, where's the president? I don't know. I thought you had him. I thought you had him. Oh my yeah. gosh. And he did it a couple Sundays too. He got up in the morning, decided he was going to go to church. And he just leave. <laughs> and, I not, have, and not tell them where he's going. Nope. Yeah, Nia, I have said for years, there's a funny political historical movie uh, that is entitled Finding Truman, okay? <laughs> um, because I I'm aware of those anecdotes that Bill just shared. And could you imagine, you know, a movie set, you know, in the late 1940s, okay? You know, post-World War II, okay? And we have a president who gets bored and he doesn't have any money and he thinks he may need to get money. So he goes to the bank, right? Without telling the Secret Service, okay? <laughs> Um, or, I mean, and can you imagine the call from the bank? Um, the president's yeah. here. Uh, hey, you're looking for somebody. Uh, we thought you might want to come pick him up, right? Or whatever. But also, <laughs> I, I'm okay. So, I don't know. Uh, Y'all are probably not um, Anglophiles in the way that I am an Anglophile, but I love the Queen. I love the Queen. She's fabulous, right? <laughs> she carries a purse with her all the time. And there's a part of me that's like, what would you buy? Like, what do you need a purse for? It's not like you're ever going to get locked out of Buckingham Palace. When you show up, they're going to open the door and let <laughs> you in, right? Like, and then somebody said at one point, oh, she carries lipstick and a Kleenex. And I was like, okay, all right. But, but what you're, but it's funny to me that any president would think, oh, I need some cash. Like, that's something that my stepfather, who's in his 80s, that's the kind of thing he would think. If he saw his wallet was empty, he'd be like, oh, I need to have at least a little bit of money because you never know, right? So I get the mindset sort of, but there's part of me that's like, what would the president pay for? Like, When the president goes off to McDonald's, when Bill Clinton goes off to McDonald's, did he actually pay for McDonald's? Surely not. Surely there was somebody on the staff who took care of that. There's I don't know. That is Other people's food. I'm sorry? Clinton was probably eating other people's food. <laughs> the tendency to sit during campaigns, he would sit down at a diner or something and he'd talk to people and he would like start taking French fries. <gasps> no. Um, yeah. Yeah. Cause yeah. yeah Cause <laughs> yeah. He, and, and again, it's Nia, you know, this, this, this is, a, it's a Southern thing, right? If somebody shows up at your house, you don't go in and tell them you can't eat their food. Okay, you know, they eat food. You know, you offer them food. Oh, right? you offer them food, but taking food off of somebody else's plate is just raised okay. by wolves. That's well, I mean, it, it, the, the other great thing about <laughs> Truman is his weekly poker game. Okay. Yeah. Um, and, okay, and, wait, he played a poker game? Who plays poker game with the president and doesn't let them win? <laughs> oh, whoa, 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 whoa. He played poker with members of Congress and the Supreme Court. Oh, tell me he took their money. Uh-uh. Okay. He frequently <laughs> lost. Okay. He insisted. The president owes me 10 bucks from last week's poker game. Oh, yeah. <laughs> he insisted that the, uh, during the poker game that they did not treat him as anything, any, any different than what he was before he was president. Well, that answers the question of why he needed cash. 
<laughs> if he's going to play poker and lose, that explains that that question. I do think that's funny, and I think it's funny that he just gets up and goes to church. Like, okay, well, it's Sunday, and I'm going to church. Like, you yeah. know, like like millions of Americans every Sunday, and it gets up and goes. And I'm sure the Secret Service is like, oh, he has got to stop doing this. But the other thing is, don't they? Wouldn't you at some point? Like, this is what I would do. I would either put a bell on him so I could hear him when he moved, or I would put tape across the door. And in order for him to get out of his bedroom, he'd have to make enough noise that I'd be like, all right, he's on the move. Let's, let's follow him. Cause clearly, I mean, you poor secret service to hair falling out in clumps saying, I don't know where he is. Do you know where he is? And they're looking in every closet. They're opening every door. How many doors are there in the White House where he could be in that's, a room they they don't even think about? That's why I think there should there would be a really funny movie. Where's Where's the president? Or where's Truman? Yeah, <laughs> like Waldo. There you go. <laughs> now, Nia, sir, I'm going to need you to wear this red and white striped sweater all the time so that guy. we can locate you no matter where you are, you know, or you, I, you might have to, you know how people are worried about FEMA and tracking devices and vaccines, which by the way is completely ridiculous. There's no tracking device in your vaccine. And if you don't want to be tracked by the government, turn off your phone. Um, yeah. I mean, hello, but like, wouldn't it be, <laughs> Wouldn't it be, maybe what we need to do is put those things like they do with pets. Maybe they need to put those in the president. Well, I mean, one of those Like, chips. sorry, this is yes. part of being the president is that you agree to be chipped. And then that way the Secret Service can find you no matter what. That would actually be useful because then if the president got kidnapped or something, you'd be able to go right to his location. And then you could also come up with a, a door that only the president could go through and have like a little president door. Like the main door and then the one that the president go in and out that way if he wants to be alone he could be alone yeah okay <laughs> nia you've I nia you've asked bill and i uh uh who are some of our i don't know favorite characters but you know who do we think of of characters do, do you have one you want to talk about i um I don't know enough about the characters that I, I just think of when I think of those people there. Um, one of the people who comes to mind is Ann Richards out of Texas, right? Because partly because of the way she talked that 1988 um, uh, uh, speech at the democratic national convention. That's the yeah. one. Oh yeah. my gosh. She had the best line ever when she said, um, she felt sorry for George Bush. Poor thing. He was born with a silver foot in his mouth. You know, it's just, it's <laughs> such a marvelously adroit, obnoxious thing to say. And she said it in this beautiful, elegant way while she was there with her coiffed hair and her pearls and her, you know, perfect makeup. And I just, <clears throat> I love Ann Richards in part because Ann Richards also brought serious game like she wasn't a she wasn't a, a created figure she had created herself and and by that i mean i'm not trying to be ugly about sarah palin but and sarah palin had some really interesting lines that she delivered um right what's the difference between a hockey mom and a bear lipstick right like i get it and she's was, was pretty funny but but a lot of that was created for her she didn't 
she didn't have a natural like her leadership in 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 alaska was was um smaller i think but ann richards had a huge sort of leadership role in texas well i mean the great the great thing about ann richards is she rose through the ranks of government positions in the state of texas okay um i mean when she ran for governor nobody questioned her bona fides for doing government work because she had been doing government work um, for a couple decades. I mean, she started off at the local level. Um, uh, she was a Travis County uh, commissioner. Um, uh, and uh, uh, then she was a Texas state treasurer. Um, so, I mean, she was, I mean, she had won a, a number of elections and she had done good work before she ran for governor. Okay. And she was what, I think the second governor in the uh, second female governor in the state of Texas. Okay. I mean, you want to talk about an old boys network. Okay. And Richards challenged it. Okay. Uh, she challenged it. Well, and she was a, I mean, she was a Democrat in Texas, like, well, no, wait a minute, put this in context. Texas, like many Southern states, well into the 1980s and early 1990s were controlled by the Democratic Party. Oh, okay. okay. It, 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 and again, I, you know, this, is, this is one of those- I think things. of Texas as red, sorry. Okay, yeah, well, I mean, in the last three decades, that's definitely the case. But you know, like I tell, like I tell my students, remember guys, Post-Reconstruction after the Civil War, well into the 1970s, okay, the South was controlled by the Democratic Party. But Democrats meant a different thing then. Yes, particularly in the South. <laughs> it, it was a one-party state, like all throughout yes. the former Confederate states, right? Do you think she might have, if she had been maybe... 25 years later, she might have been a legitimate candidate for president as the first female. Do, do you know what I mean? Like, I think she was too early for that because yeah. I don't think the country was ready for a female president. Um, no, I think do you think that she might have she might have gone all the way if she'd been born a little bit later. Uh, yeah, uh, I think she would have had a pretty legitimate shot. Um, uh, and again, she wasn't manufactured like Sarah Palin was, right? I mean, Sarah Palin didn't check the boxes in regards to government service before becoming uh, governor of Alaska, right? Um, I mean, and that was always one of the criticisms of Sarah Palin, Sarah Palin was that she was a lightweight, okay? Um, yeah, she'd been mayor of Wasilla, I think yeah. was her... Yeah. So, I mean, uh, Ann Richards had a couple decades of government service. And by the way, when you're treasurer of the state of Texas, it's, <laughs> okay, it's a, it's a huge state with a lot of revenue. Yeah, right? that's, like, that's like being pretty close to being the Department of the Treasury at the national level. It, when, once you've been in charge of the revenue of Texas or California, right. Or New York. Or New York. Then people say, would you like this national job? You're like, yeah, yawn. I mean, you know, like it's not, 
as opposed to coming from a place that, like in Montana, where the budget is really small because the population is really small. Yeah, and the revenue and the tax revenue stream is isn't all that great, and the government doesn't do all that much in Montana compared to right. Texas, California, New York, Florida, etc. Yeah. Yeah. So that alone would prepare you for a lot of and prepare you for a lot of politics in the sense of yeah you have to manage all these priorities. I, I think it's, I, I think too that there are, um, there are best mentions, right? The, the, of, of characters, like, I think it would be ridiculous to make a list like this and not mention J. Edgar Hoover. <laughs> J. Edgar Hoover, who I think, like, it was one of the biggest characters, but he's sort of, he's almost unbelievable in his characterness. Do you know what I mean? Like, yeah, I mean, because spying on his own people and all these other things and being really anti a lot of stuff and then turning out to be a closet cross-dresser, like just how do you even put that all in one person? Right? Like that's, yeah, a few years. If there's before. a set of boxes that are marked weird, he ticked all of them. <laughs> Yeah, a few years ago, uh, Clint Eastwood directed a movie about J. Edgar Hoover, and I remember an interview that uh, Eastwood did about what was difficult making a movie about J. Edgar Hoover, and Eastwood just came out and said, he goes, some of the stuff that we considered putting in the movie, we chose not to because none of us thought the audience would believe it because it was so strange. <laughs> Exactly. Right. He was exactly. Just like, he goes, like he goes, oh no, they'll think we made that up, right? Like, <laughs> get criticized for Hollywoodizing. Exactly. <laughs> oh, it wasn't. It wasn't strange enough. You had to make stuff up. No, we didn't. <laughs> and Eastwood was just like in finding a theme, okay, that would connect the movie. Okay, was one of the more one of the more difficult parts of making this movie because he goes you could go ahead and make an entire movie about how despicable it was that J. Edgar Hoover used the you know awe-inspiring power of the FBI on U.S. citizens and he did okay right. okay he had what was known as the FBI index list okay um, it was a national blacklist okay, uh, where he kept files on troublemakers in the United States. There were probably files on us, all three of us. <laughs> we're troublemakers, don't you think? I mean, r really, the levels that he would put that down to, we might actually qualify. It would depend on how he was feeling on a given day, too, as to whether he started yeah. files on people or not. Yeah, so for listeners, if you don't know where, uh, who we're talking about, J. Edgar Hoover was the first director of the Fed uh, Federal Bureau of Investigation. Uh, yeah, the FBI. he was the director for approximately 465 years. <laughs> Not quite, but <laughs> nearly, <laughs> nearly 50 years, okay, from 19... 19th... That's a long time to be in a position of power. Like, that's Supreme Court level of power, which is pretty phenomenal when you think about it. I mean, 
Supreme Court justices don't usually live that long. We, if we put them in their 40s, they hardly ever stand until their 90s. But still, that's a lot of power. That's a bunch of presidents that you bridge where whatever the president's goals are don't have to align with yours because you're not going anywhere. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, think about it. What was really unusual was he was made director when he was 29 years old. Director of the FBI at 29. Yes. And that the- makes me feel like such a loser at my age. <laughs> but, I'm just saying that, you know. When you hit 30 and you're not director of a major federal law enforcement agency, you, you might as well just give up. Exactly. <laughs> now I just have to go back to bed because there's no reason to live. There's just, you know. Well, I, I'm kidding, but it's, but it, it's, well, one though, one has to think that also shows that they may not have put as much importance into that position as it probably should have been given. Do you know what I mean? Like if I appoint you, let's say that I, you decide that I say to you, Augie, I want you to pick one of your students to be the ambassador to Fiji. And you pick one of your 18 year old freshmen. And I say, great, Fiji's gonna take that as really? You sent us an 18 year old who hasn't graduated from college who, you know, like doesn't have any life experience or world experience. Fiji's gonna be kind of insulted by that, don't you think? Okay, but hold uh, and they here. should be. Hold not on. that there's anything wrong with eighteen-year-olds. I'm not saying. Oh, wait a minute, wait a minute, Neil. Hold on for just a second. Before the creation of the FBI, the idea of national government law enforcement was spread out over multiple agencies. Okay. Okay. So it was the FBI was not considered an important law enforcement agency when it was first created. In fact, it was at its inception, it was kind of sort of viewed as a scientific agency that would coordinate, if you will, what information the federal government had and make it available to state and local law enforcement because historically in this country, public health and safety was done at what level of government? Local. Local. Okay, they picked him in part because he had demonstrated management chops, okay, in previous government jobs. Okay, they didn't think that the FBI was going to take on the importance that it has today. Okay? Can, I, can I just say that they picked him because they were like, eh, he's a manager, and they didn't realize that he was actually Dr. Evil, <laughs> okay. who would who would eventually become this magnet of terror. By the way, he's also an example that I use in my bureaucratic politics class for the role of politics in the bureaucracy. Think about the kind of uh, political skill you have to be to be the director of the FBI for almost five decades in present with different presidents from different political parties. Well, and not get ousted or assassinated. Well, I mean, and 
each president utilized him for dirty tricks and dirty work. Mm -hmm. Even presidents wow. that we loved, okay, you know, who rank high on the, you know, annual polls of, you know, best presidents, they use J. Edgar Hoover to target their enemies. What year did he become uh, head of the FBI? Uh, da, 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 da. He became head of the FBI in uh, just 19... 1924, and the FBI was officially founded in 1935, and he served for another 37 years until 1972. Yep. And that's part of that is the role of information, right? Your job is to gather information. So you gather information on everybody who has power, and that gives you power over them. It makes you useful to everybody and dangerous to everybody at the same time. So are you telling me that research is power? Uh, absolutely. <laughs> we are some of the most powerful people. <laughs> <laughs> I have power. Um, I, I don't. Well, I do a little, but not, I, not that kind of power. And I'm actually kind of grateful because in the end, it made him bonkers. Like having that kind of power made him make choices that were... Oh, he was, but at the end of his career, Nia, he was off the rails. Yeah, okay? I mean, he was he was par he was paranoid. Um, uh, he was he was frequently mean and evil. Um, um, it was not a transparent organization. I mean, I got to kind of laugh every time I hear um, uh, members of the Congress uh, wanting to reform uh, the FBI and make it a, a more open, transparent organization. I was, I'm like, when in the history of the FBI has it been an open <laughs> and transparent organization, right? We want to harken back to the early days. I'm like, I bet you don't. FBI great again. I want to know, uh, Bill, just in the last couple of minutes that we have, did Johnson and Hoover get along? Did they... Like, because that seems like that would have been a friction-filled relationship. Well, Hoover made himself valuable to Johnson by feeding him information about all his potential enemies, about Martin Luther King as well, uh, all kinds of things. And so they had a, had a good working relationship there. So, and, and this, I'll tell you a quick story that, that I've, I've seen a couple places where uh, Johnson may have been thinking about firing Hoover. And the Washington Post caught wind of that and printed a story that said that Johnson was thinking of firing Hoover. And at a, at a press conference, Bill Moyers was not the press secretary at the time, was being asked questions about it. And apparently Johnson caught wind that people were asking questions about it. And he was so ticked off about the leak, right? And he was obsessed with leaks. So somebody leaked the information that he was thinking about firing Hoover. Johnson storms into the press conference right, and takes a podium, right, and says, I've just appointed J. Edgar Hoover FBI director for life. <laughs> really? Right? Like, and, and he hadn't actually done it, he just said he'd done it? Well, he just did it then. That was, he just made a decision. That was it at that point. And then he turns to Moyers. And uh, at the time, uh, Ben Bradley was managing editor of the Post, he turns to Moyers apparently, and uh, I'll PG thirteen this up. Thank and you. And 
he, he turns to Moyers and he says, Moyers, tell Ben Bradley, F you. <laughs> and that's how we get J. Edgar Hoover. According to that story, wow. that he was FBI director for life. Well, in the other and thing- he did, in fact, serve until he died, right? Yeah. He was he died I mean, in as director of the FBI. I mean, think about this, uh, uh, Nia, uh, uh, as we're wrapping this up. Any of these presidents who thought about getting rid of J. Edgar, uh, J. Edgar Hoover as director of the FBI or to put him in his place had to recognize that J. Edgar Hoover probably had dirt on them. It's <laughs> yeah. true. Okay. Um, you know, Kennedy wasn't fond of J. Edgar Hoover when he became president, okay? But J. Edgar Hoover made it very clear to JFK, I have a whole bunch of information about all your affairs and all of the meds you're on, okay? And that stuff will become public. I was going to say, it'd be a shame if all that came out, Mr. President. Okay. Um, oh. did, you know, did Eisenhower, okay, like J. Edgar Hoover? No. But Eisenhower made it very clear to the president, I'm well aware of who you kept downtime with when you were um, uh, the supreme allied commander in Europe during World War II. And it wasn't your wife, Mr. President. Uh, uh huh. Yike. That's, that's well, bureaucratic politics 101. Yeah. And that's characters <laughs> yes. 101, right? Like if you're going to be a baddie, be a baddie all the way. Don't be a partial baddie, right? Go for it. Go big or go home. That's the takeaway from this podcast episode. Go big or go home. That's right. That's right. Okay. Well, thanks, gentlemen. And I know in the next episode, we're going to talk about exemplars of public service. So listeners look forward to that. Thank you. Thanks, Nia. Thanks, Nia. Thanks, John. <laughs>been listening to Civil Discourse, brought to you by VCU Libraries. Opinions expressed are solely the speaker's own and do not reflect the views or opinions of VCU or VCU Libraries. Special thanks to the Workshop for Technical Assistance. Music by Isaac Hobson. Find more information at guides.library.vcu.edu discourse. As always, no documents were harmed in the making of this podcast.